Hi, welcome to another episode of Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her religious, holy friend. I'm Yael, here with Hailea. Uh, I don't have a funny intro for us today because this is this is an emergency episode, right? <laughs> Such an emergency. Everybody's this calling. the worst thing to happen to Jews the worst. since the Holocaust. This is the purpose of our podcast, this whole... This- reason we exist this is the reason we exist we are determined to make our career on the backs of hasidic (laughs) school children but um some of you may have heard uh or read even the new york times piece about yeshivas in york that is causing quite a stir and and i front page of the new york times on 9-11 on 9-11 acknowledge that god forbid over Um, the fold by the way over, <laughs> with a big pole. picture with a big picture of jews yeah. with, i don't know why they had to put horns on them though i thought that was inappropriate <laughs> but we asked ourselves you know who who because we're you know we're kind of the, the eye candy of this podcast but we oh, need yeah. somebody to to fill the substance and talk we need about the brains this. yeah so we i asked myself who do i know that maybe wrote a book called religious <laughs> liberties and education a case study of yeshivas versus new york do i know anybody who wrote that book and I remembered my friend Yoshua, aka Jason Bedrick. Hi, Yoshua. Hello. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, Thank you. Listeners of this podcast know that uh, might know that sometimes I refer to Chayalea as my my second Hasidic person that I ever knew. So That's Yoshua right. is the first. Um, we so now went you have a hundred percent of the Orthodox Jews that you're friends with are with exactly you. are on this on this That's call. Right. That's um, right. Yeshua and I went to the Kennedy School together. He wasn't even the weirdest person there, believe it or not. <laughs> um, even though he's a he's a full on um, Orthodox Jew, I certainly, I certainly felt like it, and, and not so much for being um, an Orthodox Jew, although that certainly contributed to it. But uh, I had I was married with two kids at the time, oh and so God. that certainly made me an outcast. This is true. This That's is true. So yeah. funny. Uh, did you like? Did you always want to go to Harvard? I'm just curious. Or did it just happen? Uh, I didn't always want to. Actually, I went to business school for undergrad because the the goal was to take over the family business like a like a nice mm-hmm. Jewish boy is supposed mm-hmm. to do. And then 9-11 happened, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks into my freshman year. And I decided that I was more interested in public policy and wow. Yeah, et cetera. And you got into Harvard, even though you didn't learn how to speak English until you were 30, right? <laughs> right. That's According right. to the New York times article. Which <laughs> <laughs> is yeah. pretty Although incredible. I, I should say I didn't, uh, I did not grow up observant. I grew up in a very secular uh, household. So I went to public school for eight years and then I went to Catholic high school for four years. And didn't Where become, you won, if I if I remember correctly, you won uh, r- religion student of the year or something like that. Uh, upon graduation, I was the first non-Catholic at Bishop Girton Catholic High School to receive the religious studies award <laughs> for the student who, who did best in the religious studies. That is uh, amazing! Yeah. Wow, that's that pretty amazing. And and also, I remember um, we, we had um, in our class. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot her name, but we had a fairly religious Muslim uh, woman in our class. Yes, and Sarah. She, she, Sarah, yeah, and she and and Yoshua were like best buds that's so because they were both like you know it was like such an unlikely friendship, but they were both the two religious people, which was pretty rare that's at Harvard. So nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, but that, last, that lasted until the like one of Israel's many wars <laughs> against uh, <laughs> Hamas. <laughs> yeah, we're we're all used to losing friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but thank you so much for being with us. Um, if, if, if you haven't been, if, you, if you're not following Jewish politics or, or kind of days of, of the Shiva that people are sitting now over this New York Times article, <laughs> um, there was a pretty uh, extensive, um, thoroughly researched um, article mm. uh, published in the New York Times, an expose uh, about um, Hasidic schools, uh, specifically in Brooklyn or parts of New York. Um, and their kind of abysmal um, rates of uh, failure uh, when it comes to standardized tests. Um, it's been causing quite a stir um, in Jew Twitter, in Jew world. I even saw a, something about today on Ynet on the Israeli, in the Israeli news. Mm. Um, being, you know, a, 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 a out-of-the-closet anti-Semite, I have um, <laughs> many, many feelings about that. But uh, I am no expert. I don't know anything about these schools, so... Uh, calling, calling upon the experts here. So what, what, let me ask you a question, um, both Yoshua and Hayale, I guess, before uh, we knew about this article before it came out, right? Mm -hmm. Because people were yes. talking about it and they had sent it to uh, some people in the community for comment. Before you read the article, what was your, what was your, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I was one of those that got the, um, like three different people <laughs> sent me the, what the New York Times had sent out to various yeshivas asking for comments. So it wasn't mm. the entire article, but it was like, here are all the horrible things that we're going to say about you um, mm -hmm. probably this weekend. And you've got till noon tomorrow to give us a response. Mm -hmm. uh, so actually a number of people, myself included, actually just went out and wrote an op-ed uh, in advance of this since we knew what was coming. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, my view is that it is essentially, it's a very biased uh take on the situation. I guess we should probably give our listeners a little bit of background here. Yeah, of what's we going should. On, we should. Uh, which yeah. is that, I mean, for a number of years now, there has been a push to um, have a number of yeshivas, which are uh, Jewish day schools, teach more secular studies. Now, it should be noted that the vast majority of yeshivas are teaching secular studies. Uh, there is a small number of Haredi or Hasidic yeshivas, those are not synonyms, but uh, mm -hmm. it's a little complicated to dive into what all that means. But there is, uh, sometimes you hear them called ultra-Orthodox. Uh, ultra ultra <laughs> that's like, it's like, like ultra-maga? Yes, it's ultra. It's, you, that's essentially what, what the New York Times is signaling when they call somebody <laughs> ultra-Orthodox. I've I never know. heard anybody in the community ever use this term. It's essentially a pejorative. What do you um, call yourself, though, Yeshua? Because I, I struggle with this. Yeah. I mean, because Yael always introduces me as her Haredi friend, and people in my community are like, you're not Haredi. They laugh. They're like, you're so, you know, you're too <laughs> modern to be called Haredi. But really? I mean, in reality, no, yeah. I, 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 I if think If you have I a smartphone, you're not Haredi. Right. But on the other hand, we're Hasidim. I mean, we're, I'm definitely yeah. Hasidic. That's so right. it's an interesting, like, it's a funny combination of... Right. And it's interesting from the outside looking in. And it, I mean, I, I don't mean this. I mean, this sounds funny, but it's true. I think for every community looking at another community, we generalize, right? So yeah. everybody yeah. who's not secular is Haredi, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And I'll, I'll even generalize when I'm speaking to the outside. So like a lot yeah. of, <laughs> we're getting really into the weeds here. Uh, Chayla and I are both Lubavitchers. Mm -hmm. And we, Chabad Lubavitch is a Hasidic group, but uh, even though all the other Hasidic groups, I think we can safely say are Haredi, a lot of people do not consider Lubavitch Haredi because we are too engaged with the outside world. And mm -hmm. uh, most, you know, Haredim basically, uh, to a great extent, 
shelter themselves from the outside world. Right. Who works By the way, at there's the more NH? more in the Haredi community than just uh, Hasidim too. Right. Which gets Who works at BNH and like the Diamond District? <laughs> and then, no, this is an important question because these people interact with yeah. the outside Haredi world. Haredi Hasidim. I mean, the, mostly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lubavitch. No. Some, but some, mostly, but generally mostly not. not. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got but it. I so, mean, the thing is about just one point I would make about that is although Yoshua is totally correct that Chabad is often considered its own like situation. Um, but <laughs> when it comes to education, I think that we could safely say that the Chabad schools are what they are trying to describe in would fall into these categories mm. um, in general. Some. The ones in New York, especially. Not um, all of them. I mean, some in Crown right, Heights. Not all, right. I mean, some even, in Crown Heights. Even when the Rebbe was, uh, you know, alive, there were some that were uh, yeah, teaching open. secular studies and there were right. some that weren't. And right. so they had these right. two different systems operating right. together. Right. So it seems like they're talking about about 100 schools, more or less, right, in this article. Or they're saying that about 100 schools with 50,000 boys. And I, I want to ask you, you guys, like, what percentage of the orthodox, quote unquote, ultra, like, if what percentage of the religious schools are are this specific group that they're talking about? Mm. I honestly don't even know. Yeah, uh, don't it know. would it would not include any of the modern Orthodox schools, and it would include uh, probably I would say less than half of the Haredi and Hasidic schools. Okay. Um, when the complaint, there was a group of people called the Yafed, uh, which is Young Advocates for Fair Education, mm-hmm. that a few years ago brought a complaint. And their complaint concerned about 40 schools, although it got whittled down because it turns out some of them were institutes of higher education, some of them were defunct or actually didn't exist. And so in the end, it was 29 schools that they were looking at. Um, mm. What the New York Times is looking at they don't give us the names or anything like that, but I think you're right. It's probably closer to about a hundred, but they're playing fast and loose with some of the facts. Like when they're talking about how much money is in the system, it seems to me that they're actually including all of the Haredi schools, including the ones that are teaching secular ed. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, but when they're talking about very low test scores, they like, they identified nine schools that, had like really, really low test scores. So Mm. like sometimes they're looking at a larger slice of the pie. Other times they're looking at a narrow slice of the pie and and whichever way they're looking at it, they're doing it in such a way to, um, I think, put these Jewish schools in a bad light. Uh, Mm. So when they want to say how big the problem is, they give you a big number of how many kids are in the system and how Mm -hmm. much money is being spent. A billion dollars is going to these schools. Mm -hmm. But you only get you literally have to go to paragraph 29 to see that they say well the public schools get a lot more money but they don't tell you yeah, how much <laughs> so i did the math i don't know i don't know what their numerators and denominators actually are cuz they don't tell you but let's say that this billion dollars first of all it's a billion dollars over 4 years so it's interesting yeah. that they say that over 4 years so we're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. a quarter of a billion 250 million dollars mm-hmm. roughly each year right um, over how many students? Well, if it's just the students, the 50,000 students at the yeshivas they're talking about, we're talking about they're getting $5,000 per pupil. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you, wow. do you know how much they spend in New York City public schools? Out of curiosity? Mm-hmm. Just take a wild no. guess. 10,000? 
$30,000 per pupil. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So the public schools are getting $30,000 per pupil. These schools are getting 5,000 and, uh, and that's assuming that they're using the 50,000 number. They might be talking about the larger system, mm-hmm. which has a lot more students than that. And so it could be significantly less than $5,000. Mm-hmm. And most of that is for things like food, transportation, right. security. Like this is money. Everybody gets food. Even like yeah. elite prep schools, if they wanted to, they can get food. This is, and the New York Times was praising this policy when it was put into place a few years ago because, like, yeah, everybody gets it, but that means that the people who need it get it. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what? So we don't want the, you know, everybody should get it, but not the Jews. That's essentially what they're saying. <laughs> the uh, Black Panthers can do it, the Sotmers right. can too. But if you cut right. out, if you cut out all the non uh, instructional, uh, money that they're getting. It's, mm-hmm. it's table scraps. I mean, it's almost close to $0 per pupil, but the New York times is, uh, making a huge deal because there was this group, as I mentioned, I got, of course, Yafid, uh, which is mostly, um, uh, like sort of like we'll call them ex Hasidim. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are still Orthodox and in the community, modern Orthodox, some of them left entirely. Um, but they're upset that they felt that they were denied the kind of education that they wished they had. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them describe the struggles that they have entering the outside world, finding a job. And so they were like reaching out to different um, media outlets like the New York Times, like uh, the uh, even the New York Post, uh, and trying to pressure uh, the board of regents to adopt regulations on these schools that would force them to teach more secular education, mm-hmm. um, under, under what's called the, uh, substantial equivalency law, which was a law that was passed, um, back in the late 1800s. Really, it was targeted against Catholics at the time. Uh, and cause you know, the Catholics started running their own schools and the Protestant, uh, the WASP elite establishment got really nervous about this. And they said, well, we want you to teach the same things that we're teaching. And so you have to teach something that is quote unquote substantially equivalent to what the public schools were teaching, which at the time were basically Protestant schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, But actually the Catholics were happy with that arrangement because at the time the Catholics wanted to show, Oh, we're good Americans. We're just like the rest of you. We do all the same things that you do. We just do it in a Catholic way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously when it comes to the yeshivas, they want to do something that is substantially different from what the public schools are doing. And so that becomes the source of the controversy. So what, what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is, is that it's kind of like a laser focus on something that is, you're, you're not necessarily denying the, the, you know, the, the type of education that's maybe not sufficient in English and science, but you're saying it's a very, very small part of, of public spending and of the, the Jewish education system? I would say it's a very small amount of public spending when you compare it to the total, what mm-hmm. they're actually spending on those schools. Like mm-hmm. the, the New York City school system alone spends more than what like entire states spend in terms of public spending. Yeah. Uh, but well, luckily all the kids there know how to read and write. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. But I wouldn't say it's an insubstantial number of uh, Haredi Jews in New York. Mm. It's, a, it's a sizable number of them that are going to these schools, but not all of them are getting the horrible test scores that you're seeing from some of these schools. And mm-hmm. frankly, look, I mean, I take these test scores with a grain of salt because in uh, uh, I don't deny at all that these kids would do poorly on those tests. But in the mm-hmm. case where like every single kid in the school fails, in a lot of cases, like they're only taking the test because 
you know, they need to take the they test in order to right. qualify for some government funding. And so they basically tell the kids, like, go in, just fill out the circles, and then go home and don't waste yeah. your time on this nonsense, uh, which I think is a PR mistake because right. it comes back to bite them now. Uh, but their view is like, look, this is a waste of time for us, and we're not going to play by your rules. And if we have to go in and just fill out the bubbles, we'll go in and fill out the bubbles. But that's not to deny that um, there, there definitely are kids. We should just, like, you know, concede this up front. There definitely are kids who come out of that system with only very rudimentary math skills. You know, they'll, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, but they're not doing algebra, let alone calculus. Um, Very little math or history, sorry, uh, science or history. Uh, And their English, I mean, look, uh, it depends on the community. So if you're in Crown Heights and you're Lubavitch, even if you're going to the school that doesn't teach anything in English, all of the kids are going to speak English yeah. pretty much without a, without an accent. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. like a New York accent, but uh, <laughs> fluent English. If you're in the Sotmer community, um, which is more, you know, like Borough Park, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it Flatbush? I was Williamsburg. There you Williamsburg. go. Mm-hmm. See, I should. I, I only spent six months living in New York and I I got mm-hmm. Yeah, Williams were those students, a lot of them are going to grow up and they're depending on what field they go into. Um, many of them will speak just very rudimentary, broken English. English is a second language yeah. or third or fourth language, actually. Right. Mm. I, I think oh, I have so much to say on this. T- I'm happy you're here because I'm so emotional about it and totally like not. I, I would just spend the entire hour like yelling and screaming and not actually talking about facts. So thank you for being here (laughs) because we needed someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Um, I think just to, I want to put like a couple of markers in this article that I I really want to touch upon. One of them being um, this accusation of abuse that the New York Times seemed to be making across the Haredi schools, which is in my opinion, a blood libel. I, I don't, that is absolutely not true. They cherry picked a few cases of abuse. And I'm not saying that those stories didn't happen, but it, it is about physical abuse. Yeah. Right. I mean, they, they made it sound like the kids are absolutely suffering in these schools and they're scared of their teachers and administrators and they're getting beaten up if they don't memorize the Talmud. I mean, th- this is just nonsense. It's horseshit in my opinion. And well, like I was surprised that the kids called some of the kids called 911 because I'm like that must be really bad if somebody and and in a way that shows how how maybe uh unique that is in the landscape that if it, it, you know it's not something that maybe happens every day. Exactly. It, it's, it is absolutely not something that happens every day. I mean, like regular schools, you can find like public schools, you can find the stories of abuse for sure. Um but I, I really have a problem with the way they characterized the abuse in the schools. That was you know, like number I, one. I was on my way to a meeting last week um, uh, in New York uh, to talk about this issue. Uh, it was scheduled uh, months ago, so we didn't know this whole thing was going to break at <laughs> this particular so time. But that day, everything was circulating. So I was in the Uber from my uh, hotel to the event, and I'm listening to, to – the guy has the radio on to uh, the news – and it's, you know, there were these kids and they were public school kids and they, um, you know, they were stealing from a cabbie and they ended up killing that, like beat the cabbie to death. Right. Oh and then others that, you know, had yeah. robbed the liquor store. And then there was a public school kid who was like 15 sitting outside of the public school and some other students came over and shot and killed him. Oh and this God. was just on the ride over. So, yeah. you know, any <laughs> system that's large enough is going to have some sorts of examples. But I'll tell you, 
you don't hear examples like that coming out of the yeshiva community. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You don't hear any of that kind of violence. And, and another thing is they, at the end of the article, they got into, oh, the, like how desperate these people are and they're falling into drugs and all this kind of oh stuff. Oh my God. Look, drugs is a human problem. Mm-hmm. Any community, rich or poor, black or white, religious mm-hmm. or not religious, mm-hmm. there's going to be some members in the community that struggle with drugs. But I will tell you this, the drug, rate, the drug rates are far lower. Like we are in an epidemic of drug use in this mm-hmm. country right now, especially in certain communities. Uh, it definitely happens in Hasidic and Haredi communities, but it is far, far lower because there is much more social capital. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that we're going, like in this article, first of all, Jews live in enclaves. Other groups live in communities. Jews live in enclaves. Right, right. right. Um, <laughs> in other areas, the New York Times celebrates when um, uh, communities have you know, culturally sensitive uh, mm-hmm. curriculum, right, that's designed to meet their needs and, and uh, uh, criticizes test scores for being, when certain communities don't do well on the test, it shows that the test itself is racist, <laughs> and therefore, we should dismiss the findings exactly. of the test. But here, true. we're going to use the test to beat the Jews over the head, oh, right? So true. Even though they're taking the test in a language that is not the language that they've spoken at home, right? Uh, right. So uh, it's just interesting to me that there is this double standard that that you saw like throughout the entire New York Times article, and they will give you anecdote after anecdote, but no statistics about how prevalent it is here versus other places. Right. Uh, it's it was very frustrating, and like you said, I, it, it is almost like a, a blood libel. Well, I want to I want to push back a little bit, and that's kind of my, my role here. So let, let's let's peel back. Let, let's kind of you know sift through these layers of of. The New York Times kind of shining a light on on something that is is completely uh, exaggerated and their double standard, which honestly, if, if there wasn't a double standard, the New York Times, it, it wouldn't be the New York Times anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and let's let's try to attack this as if this was like, you know, in within a Jewish newspaper, let's say, like within the community. Would this is this something that I don't know, the Hasidic or the, the Haredi uh, community thinks is a problem are there are there really issues to be discussed here because to me you know as as a secular jew and, and i think i've been trying to pick apart the arguments and and you know i think there's a strong argument for religious liberty i think there's a strong argument for this type of education not necessarily leading to poverty because people are going into different businesses but the one thing that i really can't wrap my head around is kids not learning to speak English and kind of integrate themselves into the communities that they were, that they are born and raised in. And that's something that I find pretty, pretty troubling. And I think if it was, if we were to hear about like a Muslim schools in Texas where they don't teach the kids English and they only speak Arabic, you know, we might have a different reaction. So am I, am I overstating that? I'm fine with it. (laughs) I'd be fine with it. So I'll tell you my bias. Uh, you know, having your bias is that you're a libertarian. <laughs> yes, I'm somewhere between a libertarian and a conservative. I'm a conservatarian. Uh, uh, I swing both ways. Uh, I, I'm like I'm one of like maybe three people that's worked at both the Cato Institute and the Heritage Foundation. Um, that's why we but, like you. We like yeah. uh, conflicts here. Uh, exactly. Look, a, a few years ago, I actually wrote an op-ed on this, and uh, in in the New York Post, and defending the religious liberty of the schools to to do what they're doing. Uh, even though I was making a full-throated case of why they shouldn't, right? Um, 
I come from a background where uh, secular education was prized. I send mm-hmm. my own children to a school that, uh, you know, it's a Jewish school and it teaches uh, robust secular and religious curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, my view is that uh, these can be integrated and and both are important. And that's, that's the way I live. And I wanted, uh, but I just didn't think the government should be forcing these other schools. The government mm-hmm. shouldn't force them to do it. But as a member of the community, I would like to persuade them to, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually over time and actually through the process of, uh, you know, editing this book and, and meeting with lots of people in the community, why not? I actually take a different view. Um, there's, there is a debate over this very issue that is a longstanding debate in the Jewish community. And by longstanding, I don't mean a few hundred years. I'm talking a few thousand years. Uh, <laughs> this is a good Jewish co- debate. It's yeah. a good Jewish How we debate. like them, yeah. So in the Talmud, you've got a debate between Rabbi Nahorai and Rabbi Yehuda. And Rabbi Yehuda says that he teaches his children Torah and a trade. And Rabbi Nahorai uh, explains that he teaches his children, his children Torah alone. Uh, now, the majority follow Rabbi Yehuda, and I follow Rabbi Yehuda in, in that sense. Um, but it's always been the case that there's been a minority in the Jewish community that has followed Rabbi Nahorai. And I think that that is a good and healthy debate to have. I think it's a good and healthy thing that there are different parts of the community that are taking different strategies. Um, and uh, look, you know, are they speaking the language of the broader society? No, it's, you know, they're not, they're not speaking English. And I think it is important that most Jews are speaking English, but it's also, I think, important for us that there is a vanguard that is only speaking Yiddish, that is doing everything they can to preserve a particular way of life uh, that is uh, very much separate. Uh, I think both are actually important and that, mm-hmm. that we as a broader community live within that tension. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that there's groups out there like Footsteps that um, when there are, you know, when there are boys and girls that grow up to be young men and women and decide that they want to leave the community, that there are resources there to help them go into the society. Just like I'm glad that there are organizations out there that helped people like me who grew up outside of the community integrate themselves into the community. I mean, I had a lot of catching up to do. I didn't grow up reading highly complex texts in Hebrew and Aramaic and, uh, you know, learning how all these different texts relate to each other. And there's commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. Uh, that was a, a real learning curve. So there's always going to be people that, that are dissatisfied with the education that they received. Any, any form of education you get is, uh, not getting all of the other possible types of education that are out there, which means that some doors are going to be open and some doors are not going to be open. Uh, But as a free and pluralist society, we should have an education system that reflects that freedom and pluralism, including the freedom to reject the uh, main culture and to go your own way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say from a different perspective also, um, how do I say this politely? But uh, I'm not sure how to say it nicely. I don't know how to say it nicely, but like, I don't think Haredi, uh, the Haredi community gives two shits about what the Board of Ed decided is education. 
right? Mm. And I, right. I feel that way too. Like I don't, just because some bureaucrat decided that this is what an eighth grader needs to study or this is what a first grader needs to know, like that's not the, the model that I want my kids to follow. Now, I recognize that there's a reason why, you know, public education looks the way it does and why the subjects that are offered are the way they are. And I understand they're age appropriate. I'm not, I'm not debating that. I'm just saying that's not my first priority when I think about educating my children. What Mm -hmm. I want for my children is a robust Jewish education. I want them to have Torah values instilled from a very young age. Those are the things that I'm worrying about first and foremost, right? I wanted my kids to learn how to read and write Hebrew at the same time that they were learning how to write English. English was secondary to me because I knew that eventually they would learn how to read English and write English, which they did in normal age, kindergarten or whatever. But it was much more of a priority for me as a parent that my kids were studying the weekly Torah portion every single week in school and understanding how to start, you know, opening up a a Torah and like understanding what the words are and following along and understanding Mm -hmm. the Talmud story. So Uh, You have to, it's very easy to sit on the sideline and be like, how could you not care about social studies? Well, we just don't. Like, it's just, that's not a priority for me. It's it's hard for you to understand the things that I care about, you know? And I, that, yeah. The argument that, the argument that that I hear a lot and and is is quite compelling, uh, maybe that goes into an education choice uh, question as well, is all that is fine by me as long as I don't have to pay with my taxes, right? But that's BS because I think people say that, but that's not what they're saying. They don't, what, all of a sudden they're so fiscally responsible that they care where every dollar of New York State budget goes. They they say that, but really what they're saying is we are judging you and you're mm-hmm. doing it wrong. Yeah, you know, I, think I think most of those things can be true. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, look, there's, then when the New York Times makes that argument, uh, I think uh, it's a pretext exactly. for other biases they have. I think there are others out there that, that legitimately do worry about this. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, I mean, look, I've got here some statistics from, from Pew, okay? Mm-hmm. And they were looking at households. Um, uh, this is, it's, it's from a number of years ago, uh, but, uh, it's it's the last study of its of its type, right? So in the U.S. general public, fifty six percent of households earn less than fifty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Among Haredim, it's forty three percent, which means okay. that they are less poor right. than the national average. Mm-hmm. Um, when they look at rates of poverty, so this is this is looking at actual income. When you look at rates of poverty, uh, Hasidim look poorer for two reasons. One. They have much larger families and poverty mm-hmm. rates are tied to family size. So if you have two families that have the same household income and one of them has two children and one of them has six children, the one with six <laughs> children is going to look <laughs> poorer. Yeah. Be, you know, uh, the other thing is that Hasidim are younger on average. When you have mm. lots of kids, the average population age is much lower, which means that you're looking at a, you know, when they are earlier in their earning life cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you adjust for those things, that uh, they are not poor. Uh, if you look at households that are making over $150,000 a year, uh, 8% of the general public makes over $150,000. Uh, and among Haredim, 24% make mm-hmm. over $150,000, which is to yeah. say 3.5 times as many of these uneducated 
Haredim, right. so-called uneducated, yeah, and are making more than $150,000 a year. So I, I don't actually buy the, oh, they're they're trapped in a cycle of poverty. Yeah, and argument. I get that argument. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think people, if, if these yeshivas taught like math, these people would suddenly go into like, you know, advertising. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I do buy, you know, I, I do think that the, the skills taught are, are the relevant skills for that community and people find a way to, to and make a living. I, I think the difficult part for me to wrap my head around is, and again, maybe this is my, my bias as, as a Jew who is kind of very much wants to show a face of the Jews to the world is how insular the community is. And the more insular it is, the more exposés like these cause a lot of tension, cause a lot of interest, because we don't really have any other windows into this world. If, 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 you know, if we would have interactions with Hasidic people every day and we would see them on TV and we would hear about them on the radio and in our politics, you know, things like this wouldn't, would just be like one, one part of, of a, of a very complicated picture that we're painting, Look, but we you, don't you, get to see these, these, um, we don't, we don't get to see an insight into communities. Look, even if they were all, uh, super outgoing, like, Lubavitchers are. Um, There's such a tiny percent. Look, American Jews are two percent of the population, uh, mm-hmm. probably less these days. Orthodox are ten percent of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haredim, mm-hmm. so we're talking now point two percent of the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, Haredim are even a smaller percentage of that. I mean, so you're talking about even if all of them were outgoing, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. It can't uh, all I be Chayalea, right? Well, the reason <laughs> the reason they're getting all this attention and the Amish aren't is because the Amish are out in the woods somewhere else, far away from New York. And in Brooklyn, I think what it really comes down to is they're right here in the heart of New York Mm -hmm. saying to the New York Times and their friends, we reject your culture. We reject your values. We're not going to live like you. We're not in the rat race chasing, you know, status and money and stuff like that. Like we have very different goals and a very different lifestyle and we're going to live the way that we want to live. And that is... Uh, you know, it's the thumb in the eye in, in a way, just by walking down the streets in the middle of the summer, wearing a fur hat and a long coat, uh, <laughs> saying to the New York Times, like, we don't, we reject your values. And I think mm-hmm. that's why they're getting all of this think, attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a, and we should acknowledge that there is a part of the community. And I think it's a small part. I know the New York Times wants to make it a big part. Netflix wants to make it like it's the biggest part. There's a small part of the Hasidic community that that, that can't handle being part of the Hasidic community. And they do leave and they do venture out into the world. And it is difficult. And they all get book deals. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or movie deals. It is difficult. And many of them do have, but you know, there's, uh, listen, I, I, some of my closest friends have come from that part of the world because they ended up at my Shabbos table. Um, and you know, we sat around talking and there's a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and most of it comes from family life or, you know, uh, you know, situations that it would be the same regardless if they were, you know, Jewish, Amish or Muslim or Sikh. Okay. Because some families and some people are just dysfunctional and mm-hmm. I, does our or community handle- middle income secular. Exactly. Exactly. And 
I'm not saying that we handle it exactly perfectly. I think there is room to grow for how we handle kids who don't want to be orthodox and don't want to be religious. And it's hard. I mean, it's a hard balance. If you have a family of six, seven, eight kids and, you know, one of the older siblings decides that they're not keeping Shabbat anymore and they start coming home and they're on their phone on Shabbat at the table without their kippah. And it's like we're we're learning how to navigate these difficult situations as well. I mean, and, and there's been a huge shift within the Haredi community around this. I mean, within my own adult lifetime, okay, when I was a 20 year old, if someone wanted to leave the community, they were gone. Like you, they were not around. Today, the rabbis encourage families to love unconditionally and accept your child the way they are and deal with the issues, you know, regardless. And I mean, there's, I can't tell you how many organizations exist just on this topic now, okay? Whether it's drug related, whether it's trauma related, whether it's, you know, just somebody, a kid who doesn't want to be religious anymore. There's a lot of support within the community for the parents or the kid. And again, are some people going to slip through the cracks? Yes. Are there going to be some kids who grew up in terribly abusive homes? Unfortunately, yes. I wish I could say that that didn't happen, but every, you know, we're humans and it's and like any community, you're going to have that population. But I think that overall to look at the community, you can't help but notice uh, a healthy lifestyle for most of the families. Their kids are happy. The kids are functional. Fa- you know, I, I go on and on in this podcast about the benefits of Shabbat, the benefits of living in a community. COVID, I mean, during COVID, the way the community came together and helped each other. I mean, there's just the number of benefits to our community. Yeah. So we make sacrifices. When you say, when I mean, you say the community, do you like the Satmar and Chabad? Do you consider yourself part of the same community? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, not. And so, that's an interesting question because <laughs> it happens to be that those two sects actually have a, a difficult history. But today, it's not like it used to be. I mean, in the 1970s, right. they were like at war with each other. I mean, not mm-hmm. like, you know, but um, today, every pretty much, you know, there's harmony amongst the different sects and pretty much, I mean, Chabad's are all, all over the world and Satmar's doing business all over the world. So they're using Chabad for different things. They're going to the different Chabad houses around mm-hmm. the country, around the world. And um, there's just, you know, if there's so many beautiful things happening in the Haredi world, you'll never see the LA, the New York Times write an article about Beaker Cholim in New York, which is like, the mm-hmm. system of like helping people who are in the hospital. Like yeah. I would love to see a two year investigation on how Beaker Holin works within no, the hospital. No, they'll write an article about why it's, locusts are like culturally insensitive. Exactly. <laughs> white supremacy. Just, yeah. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I understand this is a, it's, it's difficult for people to hear this. Like, what do you mean you're not learning English? That's ridiculous. I, I was telling Yoshua and Yael before we started that, you know, my husband, he will hate that I'm talking about him, but um, <laughs> he, get, he, he gets annoyed. But I have to use him as an example. But my husband, okay, he, he doesn't up, understand English. So it's fine. Yeah, he grew up in London. Uh, he went to a very Haredi school that had no secular education whatsoever. He never, I know this is going to be really hard for some of you to understand, but my husband never sat in a classroom that taught anything other than Judaic subjects. So never sat in a history, math, went to one of these schools, English. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he had a tutor and my, my in-laws had, were not rich by any means, but he was definitely tutored. Um, after school, he learned how to write and read English at a very young age. Um, but he never had that secular education. And guess what? He literally edits all of my writing because he's so much better at it than I am who did have, I did Mm -hmm. have a secular education. So it's just, you know, I have a brother-in-law who went to one of these very, very Haredi schools. He's a podiatrist. Um, Another brother-in-law is a doctor. I mean, it goes on. My brother's a lawyer. Like 
it's not that we don't live in a world where everybody's standing in bread lines and like illiterate and not happening. I mean, my kids speak three languages, four languages, if you want to count Aramaic as a language, mm-hmm. right? right? My kids speak Hebrew, Yiddish, English, and Aramaic. So it's just education looks different in our community. And that's hard for people to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Is there anything comparable in the United States? Um, yeah. Probably not. I don't think so. I don't know of any other community that has its like own ambulance service, its own like, <laughs> right. private security service. Right. Uh, oh, the Asians in uh, the Asians in Brooklyn have their own was, uh, private security service. Yeah. They're learning well, so, I mean, now. There's, there's a lot of communities that have a, a you know, especially recent immigrant communities that have a high degree of social capital like this. But mm-hmm. look, we're talking about how all the problems of our age: bowling alone, atomization, yeah. lack mm-hmm. of social capital increase in drug use and suicide and, you know, deaths of despair. Well, here you have a community that while, you know, not without its problems, yeah. uh, is doing far better on all of these other metrics. I think, you know, the New York Times should be sending investigative reporters to figure out <laughs> how the rest of the world could be copying the Hasidic world in, in, in these regards. Well, uh, and look, you know, even have- some of the stories that they tell, like, oh, there was a student and he struggled in med school. Like he you know, eventually got a medical degree coming out of this. But he struggled. A Jewish student struggling in med school. That's, well, you know, I mean, that's pretty interesting. A few years ago, the New York Times wrote, a, you know, a piece that that was sort of the forerunner to this one um, that profiled Naftali Muster, who's the, the, the one who founded Yafed, um, you know, who I, I feel for him. I think he did have a, a rough childhood. Uh, but, you know, he tells the story. Oh, you know, I, I was at he was at um, CUNY and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the first day of uh, classes, uh, the teacher used the word molecule and I didn't know the word molecule. Uh, and I looked around the class and like everybody else knew it and I didn't. And like he was horrified. Right. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine how most Americans are, would be horrified by that story. Um, he went on to graduate. What, what the New York Times does not tell you is that he went on to graduate summa cum laude, right? The mm-hmm. highest honors. Right. And then he went on to get a master's degree. And I just <laughs> wonder like how many kids down the street, um, you know, at the public school, even went to college, let alone graduated with the highest honors and went on to get a master's. Now he'll tell you um, that he got all that despite his yeshiva education. And I don't want to take anything away from, you know, the grit and determination that it took to to do that. But I would argue that what he takes for granted is that to a great extent, he was able to accomplish that because of his yeshiva education, right? Mm -hmm. Now the yeshiva education is not going to give you the contents in math and history and a variety of other things that you're going to get. What it it is going to give you though, is the ability to learn how to learn, to sit for long periods of time without distraction to Mm -hmm. focus on a highly complicated text that is not written in your native tongue, that's actually written in two different languages, right? right? Something that we used to prize at like the top private elite schools that would study Latin and ancient Greek. And you'd be reading these ancient texts in these languages and engaging with them. And you're, you're studying with a partner and you're attacking the text from multiple angles. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then there's this commentator who understands this debate between Rabbi A and Rabbi B this way, but then you've got this other commentator that understands it another way. And so now all of a sudden you've got four positions, but then somebody else comes along and they understand it another way. And so the positions are multiplying. And so it's not, people think of it, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, you're studying the catechism and you're just, it's rote memorization of thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. no, it's, it's, it's like a higher level humanities course. Right. So if you can learn to do this and you make a habit of doing this for many, many years, 
When the time comes for you to leave the nest and go out into the world and you decide you want to go into another field, even though, again, the content's not there, the mm-hmm. habits of the heart are there. Um, mm-hmm. And and the other thing is, look, if you're going to say that the government just needs to step in and tell these kids to, to live a different way, then you better uh, have like a strong case that they're going to be better off if they go to those schools. Mm-hmm. If you look at the schools in Doral Park, okay, <laughs> um, I think it was from like 2016, but um, the English language learners in Borough Park at the public schools, you know what the proficiency rate was in math? <laughs> what was it? It rhymes with Shmiro. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and even recently, there, there was a study that there were 90 city schools that right. failed to pass even a single black or Hispanic student on math oh or reading. Oh right. So where is the yeah. New York Times? And by the way, and they're spending all day learning right. this stuff. On those stuff. Okay. They're spending yeah. all day learning it and they can't get it for $30,000 a pop. And yeah. they can't do it. Yeah. And so yeah. why do we think that taking these kids, because this is the implied threat. The implied threat is if you don't meet our standards, we're going to rule that all the children in your school are truant. And yeah. if you don't um, then send them to a different school, we're going to send them to a public school for you. But there's mm-hmm. no evidence that they'd actually be better off at a government-run school. Well, there's uh, somebody said on Twitter, one of the lines in the article was about a teachers, English teacher, or teachers who barely spoke English. And um, somebody on Twitter wrote, I, I went to a public school and some of my teachers barely spoke English. <laughs> actually, that was Robert Pendicio, a friend oh. of mine who's at the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute. That's okay, and funny. he was talking about how he was a teacher in mm-hmm. uh, a school in the Bronx. And okay. the teacher mentor could not speak English. The one <laughs> yeah. who was supposed to be mentoring him couldn't speak English. Oh, uh, my God. So I mean, so I mean, it, it seems it seems like a lot of the arguments that I'm 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 reading about this article are kind of showing that the standards are are very very low to begin with. What do you right? mean? Right in, in, in public in, in in New York public schools oh. in general, low so and getting lower. Um, mm-hmm. they, they actually uh, it got to the point where uh, who was this? Um, Carol Markowitz, right? Who just pointed mm-hmm. out yeah. that I got her last name right. Former guest of our yeah former guest on the show. Too. Uh, I, that was a great episode, by the yeah. way. She pointed out that it's you could now just guess C on every question and, mm-hmm. and get it uh, right. Uh, so maybe that's what the yeshiva uh, kid, and, and you know, people right. consider passing. So that maybe that's what the yeshiva kids do. You just take the test, but just you know, always guess C. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so they're lowering the standards. But well, here, one of the things I want to mention too, it aggravates me to no end when they say that these kids are uneducated. And you've seen that the New York Times Ugh. didn't do it this time, but they've done it mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, no. They're differently educated. They're learning right. something. They go to school. Their day starts before the public school kids, ends long after exactly. the public school kids. They're mm-hmm. actually highly educated in a different sphere of learning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're, yeah. oh, they, and they say they're illiterate. No, they're literate in three languages. That's right. Yiddish mm-hmm. that they speak at home and then Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, now mm-hmm. they're not walking around speaking Aramaic, but they yeah. are able to read and understand highly complex discussions in Aramaic. So I would consider mm-hmm. them to be literate in Aramaic. It cracks me up because uh, I have four sons and some they all study Talmud, you know, during school hours. And right. it cracks me up because sometimes at the ta- table, they try to have like a conversation in Aramaic. And it's yeah. really funny because it's not really a spoken <laughs> language so much, but yeah. they try to use Talmudic words to have like a regular normal conversation. And it's actually pretty funny. Right. So when they say that, you know, in the article that they are designed to fail, it's like, no, they're designed to succeed at something else. That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And I think that's a good point. Well, 
what would you, what do you think people, and, and obviously I'm putting you on the spot as, as uh, representatives of the community, which we don't <laughs> entirely know what that means, but what, what should people know? I mean, I, spoke, I speak a lot about how in Israel we're very, very separated from the Orthodox community. I don't know any Orthodox people in Israel, um, even though I, I grew up there. But, you know, the average New Yorker who's kind of reading the New York Times on the on the subway and shaking their head and if they were to stop, you know, and, and, and talk to the Hasidic person sitting next to them, what what, would, what do you think that Hasidic person should should be able to tell the world? That they enjoy living in a beautiful, wonderful community mm-hmm. and that is I mean, the, the way it's portrayed in the New York Times is here is a bunch of uneducated um, bozos that, yeah. that are being led around by these sad. authoritarian right. religious leaders. They're sad. They wish they could right. escape, but they can't. Right. And believe me, and, and they don't know about the outside world. They all know. They live in New York. Exactly. They all know what the outside <laughs> world is and what it offers. Exactly. They see it in the subway. They hear it on the radio. All of them know what's going on in the outside world. Um, and they could choose it if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Now, that's not without a cost. Right. But frankly, any decision to enter or leave a community uh, or to live one or a different type of lifestyle is going to come at a cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of them stay because they believe it is worth the cost uh, or they believe that, you know, this is the the true way that they are supposed to live. And so they mm-hmm. live accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the other thing is. They're just humans. Like, go get to know them, say hello, have a conversation. Don't be shocked if they end up inviting over for a Shabbat dinner. And, uh, you know, that we're just, you know, normal human beings who like to live and laugh. Jews, they're just like us. Exactly. (laughs) It's funny. I had had this funny story that, like, I was just thinking about it the second, but, um, you know, I work at Cal State Long Beach, which is the the university here. And, I was hosting this kid from Brooklyn who was having lots of trouble at his house at home. And it was, he was thrown out of school, whatever. And he came to stay with us for a month or so. And so I was taking him with me to work. He was like 20 or whatever at the time. And um, he came from a very sheltered family who, and they really didn't know much about the outside world, but he was trying to look like he wasn't religious. So he like wasn't wearing a yarmulke and he was like wearing jeans and a t-shirt. So if you saw him, you wouldn't know what his background was. So he came to work with me one day and we were on campus and I was introducing him to all my Hillel students who were all, you know, secular Jews. And they were chatting with him and hanging around and they were talking about music. So one of them said, well, do you like the Beatles? And he said, what, who are the Beatles? What are the Beatles? I don't know. I've never heard of them. And they were like, what? You've never heard of the Beatles. They were freaking out. And he was so embarrassed. I remember, this is like a sad story. Like he was so embarrassed in that moment. So I said to them, well, do you guys know who Mordechai Ben David is and Avram Fried and Shweki? And do you know who my boy's choir? Avram Fried is dreamy. Do you know any, do you know all the people? Do you know Mordechai Shapiro? Like just because he, we know different people. Like, yeah, we didn't grow up listening to the Beatles, but we grew up with amazing music. Do you know Country Essie? Like you don't know all the music that we grew up listening to. And I think like that moment, like really, he was like, oh yeah, that's true. It's not like I didn't have music. I had plenty of music in my life. It just wasn't the same music that you guys listen to. And I, I, that was a very profound moment, even for me, actually. Cause like, I, I mean, there, I've had moments like that and I grew, I mean, listen, I grew up here in California, so it's a little different. My parents were 
you know, Chabad rabbi and Rebbitzin. So my home was like much more open. But like, I remember my friends talking about things and I had to pretend that I knew what they were talking about when I really didn't, you know? Like what? I mean, like a lot about like TV stuff. I mean, I didn't have, <laughs> like, we didn't have a TV and I didn't watch for sure like Saturday morning cartoons. Like I didn't know any of the Saturday shows. You know what I'm saying? Like there were, there were mm-hmm. a lot of things that we had, a, it was secondhand knowledge. I would, didn't have firsthand knowledge on these things. But so what? Mm-hmm. Like looking back now, oh my God. I mean, I wouldn't trade my, the world I grew up in the way I grew up for, for knowing about Saturday morning cartoons. Like who cares? You know, mm. I don't know. It's well, just, speaking of who cares. Do you, another thing I've ever heard people say, we don't care what the New York times thinks. They can write whatever they want. Well, that's well, the how do you guys community in general. That? That's, mm-hmm. yeah. But, but you not care. We're we obviously moved by this. No, we care. People we, who we are care online. We live in both worlds. Yeah, we yeah. live in both worlds. We're online. We live in both worlds. I deal with secular Jews and non-religious Jews and reformed Jews. And Jew, actually, Jews are more upset about this than anyone else, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, even modern Orthodox. I've had, you know, today I spoke to some modern Orthodox friends who are enraged, you know, on behalf of the New York, not at the New York Times. They actually are enraged like by the article they're so like they're so upset about the Haredi schools in a way the closer you are to the Haredi community without being part of it the more judgmental and upset you are the farther away you are the less you care you know Mm -hmm. what I mean right like you're you're distance away but you care because you you know you're a little bit closer yeah and I see these people in in a way of and Kyla you and I spoke uh, a bit about this in in previous episodes but but even though I I supposedly have nothing in common with them they are a representative of me and i'm a right. representative of them in a way right to the right. outside world so i i see them in this yeah, but case they don't care no. they don't care that you feel that way do you understand like mm-hmm. they're gonna live their life it means nothing what you oh yeah l is embarrassed of us you know how much the people in williamsburg care zero they do not care imagine you have an uncle who you're embarrassed of your uncle you think he, mm-hmm. he's not changing his behavior because you're like oh i'm embarrassed my uncle he's gonna be whatever he is so the Jewish world has to like get over that. Like which honestly I think is like super healthy because when when <laughs> exactly. look when the government starts cracking down and it goes in a really dark direction, right? Like yeah. communism or something like that. Right. They're the ones that are like, we're gonna continue living our lives under communism. Exactly. We're gonna run the underground yeshivas, we're gonna do all this stuff. You're gonna tell us to put masks on, like we're not gonna do it. <laughs> You're going to tell us that, like, no, we're not doing these things. Oh, and it turns out that uh, now we're finding out that uh, high degrees of, of children are struggling with language because uh, right. they were in those key language learning years. Everybody was masked and uh, they were at very low risk of actually <laughs> being in danger from the disease. So it turns out the Hasidim were right on this. Uh, 100% right. Uh, and Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, know. It, it reminds me of the old joke, which I won't, like, tell the whole joke, but it reminds me of the, the one where, uh, Kyle, you probably know this one, uh, like some Jew, some secular Jew is on a train and sees a Hasidic Jew standing there and, and comes over and is like, what's wrong with you? You, know, you, you get to knock it off. You know, you're, you're dressed like you're from the 18th century Poland, like get with the modern day, shave your face and put on a tie. You know, why, why are you living like this? You're an embarrassment to the rest of us. And the person says, Oh, excuse me. I don't, I, you know, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm Amish. Oh, you're, Oh, I love your traditions. It's so beautiful that you, you keep the old ways and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think there is this element of, it's like in family uh, fighting, you know? Yeah. yeah, It's like, I'm embarrassed about my relative who's, uh, you know, doing something that's, it's a, it's a Shonda for the guy. Uh, and, and that's what it comes down to. That's, that's, that's why I look, frankly, 
that's why the New York Times is uh, freaking out about this. And, you know, this isn't coming from, uh, you know, some other outlets uh, yeah. that may be less Jewish. Uh, but it's it's primarily secular Jews uh, and and even some in the Orthodox community that um, yeah. are mo- on the more modern side that are really u- upset by it. Uh, so it's a very visceral, personal thing. But I think that uh, it may be clouding their judgment, and they're treating they're treating the Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, much differently than they would be treating any other community in that I agree circumstances. With. That I agree with. I mean, we have a hard time talking about about crime in different communities. Um, right. you know, let alone education rates. Yeah, El, did we um, convince you to send your future kids to Haredi schools? <laughs> you convinced me to have kids just so I could send them to Haredi <laughs> schools. <laughs> anyway. uh, no, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I obviously have my, my biases about this and, and being, a, being a secular Jew, you know, that there's nobody who, who, and I've admitted to this before, who kind of turns their nose up more than a secular Israeli to, um, you know, some, some forms of this lifestyle, but yeah, a, a, a big part of my, my Judaism and my uh, connection to, to the, to the, to the religion and to the people is also the, the, you know, how we integrate into society, how we, how we are facing outward. Um, so, so it is, it is very difficult for me to wrap my head around that notion yeah. of, we don't care what people think, we're just going to do our thing. And, and, and I, I think it's unfortunate because I think at times it also, um, it comes to the point where, you know, as long as there's a higher authority, that's, that's never going to be like the government or, or, or the community. I mean, like the broader New York community, um, then it's a very easy, uh, excuse to step on everyone and everything in order to, to get your way. Um, and maybe that's a conversation for a different, a different episode, but that stuff troubles me as well. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't, but it, it, it shouldn't. Why? <laughs> it shouldn't because, why bother? Why bother worrying about that? Um, yeah, Everyone I don't know. I just to, I, we need to live. We need to be who we are. We need the Jewish mm-hmm. people have gone through ups and downs throughout history. We're not going anywhere, and and the religious mm-hmm. community is not going anywhere. I know for some Jews, it would be nice if they could snap their fingers and the Haredi community would disappear. It's not happening. No, I, I mean, I I would definitely not say no, that. But but I, I'm just want to say this point that like actually the Haredi community is booming. I mean, yeah. it's growing. It is, mm-hmm. it is, it is robust. And I, we talked about it, I think on our last podcast, or I don't remember, but um, you know how like I flew to Cancun and there's five kosher restaurants in Cancun. Mm-hmm. Now. Like the, yeah. it's become easier to be Haredi, no, not I, harder. I, I, and so, I think that's, that's a good thing. That's, that's a wonderful yeah. thing. And I recognize that for me, it's, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to, to practice my, my, um, you know, shitty form of Judaism, um, <laughs> in, in America, uh, or in Israel without, without having to do any of that. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I guess what I was, what I was saying, what I was focusing on, and again, these might be very few and far in between cases that we hear of, but a lot of times it seems like, let's say a small community in Muncie or in, um, um, you know, I forget what the, the, the yeah. place is called in, uh, Curious Yol. Yeah. Um, are, you know, the sense of we don't care what the Goyim think or we don't right. care what the other people think can come at the expense of Goyim and other people. And that is something I have a problem right. with. I, I, yeah. I, there is a point to be made there. Mm-hmm. Um, people have made this point about Israel too. Like on the one hand, yeah. it's got the, you know, like the whole world's against us. So we got the, our chip on our shoulder and we're, you know, we don't care. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really necessary. It's a necessary attitude to have in certain times 
especially when the world is out to get you or yeah when, like, but you know, it's not like the czar isn't like in charge of westchester county <laughs> right exactly um <laughs> yeah but then but there, are, there are times look i the funny thing is both Chaylea and i are in the chabad community which like of the Haredi <laughs> adjacent communities is like the most worldly outgoing. You're like the hippies. I'm yeah. like, you know, I've got my, you know, my iPhone here and, and whatnot. Uh, so, and your we, people can't see your 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 giant bookcase, which is what what, what is the, what is the least Haredi book that you have in there? <laughs> I probably shouldn't say on this podcast. Yeah. But <laughs> people are listening. No, is it Harry Potter? <laughs> it's mostly these are mostly like. Um, Political philosophy, history, education policy. I think economics. I see like an Andrew Jackson book behind you, but I'm not sure. Is that uh, no, big? That, that's uh, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, that's Alexander Hamilton. The, that's the Ron Chernow book that got yeah, turned yeah. into a play. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought I recognized it. Uh, it's a great book. But I have no idea where I was going with that. No. Oh, well, <laughs> you were saying that we come from the most outgoing group, but I could tell oh, you. Yeah. So, no. So, we, we, in other words, we, so we do sort of care about the outside. Like, there's a part of us that don't care. Like yeah. at the end of the day, we like, we will do what we're going to do, even though it's terribly embarrassing or, right. or whatnot. We're trained that way from, from youth. There was actually a certain Rebbe who, uh, from a different community, I think it was the Kotzker, who would have his students like go into a hardware store and ask for eggs just so that they would be embarrassed. Like, so they would get you like, okay, you were embarrassed. And then what happened? Like, oh, you were fine. You survived it. Like to right. just like build up a tolerance for being embarrassed. So Lubavitchers that go on Mivsoyim, but like go ask people, are you Jewish? Learn how to film right. like that. It's terribly embarrassing. That's not my nature to do those sorts right. of things, but it gets you into that habit. Um, but at the same time, we are sensitive to what the outside world thinks. And we want to make a Kiddush Hashem and not a Hillel Hashem. Meaning we want to um, create a positive um, impression of the Jewish community, which sanctifies God's name, not a negative impression that might uh, desecrate God's name. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, I think the corollary to this is if you don't care what the outside thinks, um, sometimes you can get into a position where there's not enough self-criticism in the community and right. uh, that uh, issues don't go addressed. Um, mm -hmm. This is actually one of the, the issues that I raised with uh, the Yafed folks years ago. I was warning them. I was like, look, if you come at this from the outside, not only do I think it's immoral to go to the government to force this uh, you know, minority community to uh, change its values to be in accordance with secular society, but let's say you don't accept that that's immoral, uh, which Yafed clearly doesn't. I was telling them. If you do this, the community is going to circle the wagons and it's right. going to make it much harder for reformers within the community because they're just going to be like, well, you know, we like we can't make mm -hmm. any changes to outside That's pressure. Right. That's if right. there's I outside pressure, it's just like the, the Jewish community has developed these antibodies and it's just immediately, nope, we're not changing. We're not doing yeah, anything different. I, we're, we're staying to it. No, you're literally describing yeah. me right now. Like I'm yeah. going <laughs> to tell you something right now. There's a thing called, okay, this is going to piss off some people. There's something called Kaparis, okay? Yeah. Once a year, the day before Yom Kippur, it's tradition to take a chicken and you, we swing it over. Our, I know this sounds crazy, but we swing it over our heads. Not swing, but like we just hold it no, gently and like swing. put it over our heads. And we say a prayer and the chicken ends up being slaughtered and we eat it and whatever. Okay. Fed to the poor. And fed usually. to the poor. Exactly. And it's very, it's, it's not. Okay. Well, I was, I mean, I used to be so against it. I was like, this is disgusting. I'm not doing it. I never want to do it again. I'm getting, I'm only using money from now on because you could use money. Uh, then PETA came out. 
and PETA mm-hmm. went to war <laughs> against Caparis. We, it's in, they started, uh, you know, campaigns against it. Yeah, they started, yeah. okay, so guess what? Now I'm the biggest advocate of Caparis. I do like five chickens. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Screw you, PETA. Like, you don't tell me. Every week, too. Yeah, I'm like, you don't tell me what to do for with mm-hmm. my religious obligations when it comes to a chicken. And like, it, I actually, like, it really put me in this place where I became more... like what you're saying exactly Oshel, we like circling the wagons like we have more people doing caparis now than we ever did because we were sued they actually took us to court here in california and we won Uh, and we now like literally it's it's the craziest thing we have to have secret caparis like we have whatsapp groups that are all like code of like where it's going to be and what time because do you know that the PETA people came one year and they were screaming at my kids okay at my little kids, they were screaming, you're murderers, you're mur- no different than murderers, you're the same as the Nazis, they were telling my little kids, and my kids were crying, I mean, it was insane, and I'm like, yeah. you know what, we're going to do comparison out forever, I'm never stopping. I'm gonna, no, like, PETA has, these organizations have that effect on people, right? Exactly. Like when you throw red paint on people, like if people are like, oh, right, you're, I'm so sorry, you're actually completely correct to ruin my $400 <laughs> jacket that I just bought. But it's true, even in Israel, you know, we have organizations that are or, um, there's one organization that um, is soldiers talking about the time that they oh, served in the military right, and, and I, things, I know. the things that they did that they they see as maybe immoral. And I, I think those conversations are right to have in within Israel, within Israeli society. Yeah. But what is the point? The point of going outside to the world is completely useless. All it does is give fuel to people who already think that Israel is immoral and unjust when in reality, what you should be doing is coming into Israeli society and saying like, Hey, we think there's a problem here. It's not widespread, but it's maybe something we do want to address internally. But to me, the minute you, you kind of go to an outside source, you're kind of showing your, your, your cards and saying, okay, well, I don't really care about this issue. I care about making a larger political statement. And then you've lost me. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm glad I convinced you to to uh, convert to uh, Mormonism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I left. You know, I, I came with question. You you would make the well. You're not blonde enough. I'm not blonde. I'm not tall. I'm just this. No, it's not my people. Um, but you know, if you had a Mormon husband and made like Mormon <laughs> babies, it would be good for the Jews. I think eventually to improve our our breed. Now, um, to your last point, there, Michael Walzer had uh, an essay on. Um, Jewish prophets as social critics uh, mm. that uh, mm. the late great Rabbi Jonathan Sachs would cite frequently. Mm. Uh, and, and that's right. A community will take criticism, but only if they know that it's coming from somebody who sees themselves as a part of the community uh, and is like, it's coming from a good place. Of course, and of course. what you never saw, what like if you read through Isaiah or Jeremiah, especially, right? I mean, they are highly critical of Jewish society. Right. I mean, in really almost <laughs> anti-Semitic terms, uh, <laughs> right. sometimes they're right, describing like the Jews. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you know what they never did? They like, they never went to Babylon and started yeah. bad-mouthing Israel to the Babylonians and yeah, asking yeah, yeah. Babylon or Egypt to like crack down and force the Jews to change like that. Mm-hmm. They like, there was a clear line. They didn't cry. They so stayed true. in the community. And so I think and, this is frustrating. And it, it's, it's totally counterproductive to go outside the community. And frankly, yeah. And in all. this case, in the New York times, like the, the Jews and, and uh, Zionists, but Jews as well, 
um, if you want to separate the two, have quite the history of the New York Times. And I don't think yeah. any non-liberal Upper West Side RBG tote bag wearing um, Jew thinks that the New York Times is a, you know, a, a valid source of information on, on all things um, Jewish and Israeli. Um, um, all right. We need to have you back for like a whole, we didn't even, I wanted to talk about school choice. So we have to have you back <laughs> because I ha, I really want to dig, go, get into the weeds on that. Um, that's a, a topic near and dear to my heart. So it's, uh, uh, it's my thank you for being mission. our first, um, mm-hmm. well, not counting Kyla's father, our first Haredi guest, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh. Although I'm not, I'm probably not Haredi. <laughs> well, that's I'm, a, I'm like, I'm on you, a, I've got a smartphone. Anyone who's here. not me is Haredi. Okay. <laughs> yeah. that's, I, we've established that. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't watch Saturday morning cartoons is crazy. That's so funny. Listen, <laughs> you know what? Even in Chabad, like I grew up, because so my, both of my grandparents on uh, both sets of my grandparents, one set is Holocaust survivors who came from deep within the Hasidic world. My grandmother is from a Ger family. Uh, so my cousins on that side are Ger. And my grandfather was from a, a what's called a Stoliner family. Yeah. Um, very deep Hasidic roots. My mother's side um, also Hasidic background. My great grandfather learned in the city of Lubavitch in Russia. Like, so there's like a long history in my family. And I often wonder like, what would they make of me? Cause like, I really can code switch and like, I live in two worlds and they definitely did not. Right. And so it's just <laughs> an interesting, like, you know, I grew up with legends of like how my great grandfather came to this country and literally quit his job every Friday because they were, would require them to work, you know, six or seven days a week. And he refused to work on Shabbat. And so he looked for a new job every single week. I mean, these are the stories that I grew up with, right? That, and, and look, and, and, and my grandfather would say, and look, right, his five children ended up all ultra Orthodox Jews, all their children are religious. Like we're, I have hundreds and hundreds of cousins from my, from my great grandfather, literally hundreds and hundreds of cousins who are all Orthodox Jews living in America. And, to my family, that's a very deep sense of pride, right? I mean, that's something that we look at, you know, we survived through the 20s, the 30s, the, and this is my American side, my mother's side, like, you know, through the 60s and 70s when Jewish kids were leaving and hippie, you know, becoming hippies and like, we're still here, like generations later. And so I'm not gonna, just because the New York Times decided, you know, that my lifestyle doesn't suit their, you know, view of how every American should be, like, that is just irrelevant to me. I mean, because I come from something much deeper than that. And I have something that I hold on to that's much deeper than that. Yeah, the debates that I mentioned in the Talmud between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nahorai is going to continue long after nobody has even heard of the New York Times. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's probably that's okay. We have to go because we've already held you longer than we said we would. Yeah, thank you so much. If you um if you have any questions or comments or you like what you hear or you don't like what you hear, (laughs) um follow us on Substack. It's askajew.substack.com. Um, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow. Even if you don't like us, just do it because, you know, we're Jews and you're, it's, it's anti-Semitic not to. That's right. Um, and you can also email us at askajewpod at gmail.com. Um, thank you, Yoshua. Thank you, Yoshua. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye.